Welcome to our very first segment of iArt New York, brought to you by your hosts, Rebecca Major and Isabella Gola. My name is Rebecca, and I'm an artist studying masters in art history at Hunter College. And Isabella is an artist, independent curator, and works at the Visual Arts Programming at the Polish Cultural Institute, New York. Today, for our first segment, we have in our studio our special guest, Katya Prochowski, who Isabella will introduce in just a moment. But first, I'd like to announce the show's mission. iArt New York is a talk show that will explore current exhibitions and events in and around New York. We'll compare museum exhibitions and review shows around the city and highlight what we think are relevant and interesting aspects of what we encounter. We'll also be bringing you interviews with artists, performers, curators, and critics. We'll discuss their work with them and ask them to share their thoughts on contemporary art, as well as their research and art practice. In our next week's segment, we're going to be comparing two recent museum exhibitions, the Andy Warhol retrospective at the Whitney Museum and the survey exhibition of Sarah Lucas at the New Museum. The aim of the comparative is to reveal new aspects of these two influential artists, as well as to discuss our thoughts on the exhibition's presentations. It will offer the opportunity to explore their work in greater detail and bring to light new aspects of their work through a conversation about the exhibitions. So without further hesitation, here's Isabella, who will introduce today's guest. Welcome, Katja. Thank you so much for joining us today for our first show. Thank you. I'm going to do just a brief intro about you. Katja Grochowski was born in Ukraine, raised in Australia, and is based in New York City. She's an artist, independent curator, educator, and a founding director of the Immigrant Artist Biennial and the Feminist Urgent, uh, which is available on your website for streaming, and it's great. I love it. Katja holds an MFA from the School of the Art of Institute of Chicago, and has received support through numerous residencies, fellowships, and awards, including Museum of Art and Design Studio Program, Art and Law Fellowship, Brick Workspace Residency, Mass MoCA Residency, Brooklyn Art Council Grant, and many, many others. Her work has been ex exhibited extensively, nationally and inter internationally. Katja, so moving on to your work, I'm a great fan of your work which navigates between multiple mediums, installation, performance, sculpture, video, and painting, explores issues related to gender, femininity stereotypes, migrant identity construction, alienation, labor, the self as a construct informed by your biographical experience. And you always revolve around the positioning of the body at the center um, often in a form of a character, like in the famous Bad Woman. So my first question to you would be, what is the background process behind Bad Woman? And um, how was it born? How the idea of a Bad Woman was um, evolved? Was the idea for the character first um, uh, a performance? Was the 2D or 3D image or time-based element and also, how do you navigate um, and reclaim the body position within the coordinates of, of the variety of forms in your construct um, as a landscape? And how do they reflect and comment on the conventional social order that you're subverting? Um, well, first of all, thank you very much for having me, Rebecca and Isabella, as a guest. Um, 
And I'm very happy that you're a fan. It's always great to meet people who actually enjoy what I do because sometimes it's very isolating being an artist. Um, but in terms of my whole practice and bad woman character coming along, I think she came up in post-election 2016. I um, went to Australia to do a solo exhibition and that's where I kind of hunkered down in my parents' house and went back to basics kind of thing and was sort of in this state, you know, yes, the state of mind that was at the time was, um, she kind of came up after the nasty woman comment. So my idea of a bad woman com uh, character was also formed by my family. I'm an only child. I'm a woman. I'm an artist. I'm a curator. I live in, I migrated on my own to US about 10 years ago. So I did everything on my own and I'm kind of this very forceful character myself. So I think she's kind of a collected version of me and many other characters I've been thinking about. But she was one of the first characters I, I conjured up um, and I kind of threw everything I was thinking about into her. So she um, comes with installations and sculptures and costume and painting. I'm starting to kind of even paint her now. She's sort of appearing. I've performed her so much. She has a particular mask on that was made for the show. Um, and I performed the first performance was just for the video and I staged it in my parents' backyard. <laughs> and I took furniture out into the backyard. And then the soundtrack is a very obnoxious lawnmower. So it's suburbia, deep Australian suburbia. Um, and then I just let loose in front of the camera um, and kind of staged her as almost a fashion photo shoot. Um, but failing that photo shoot miserably and failing the gaze and failing the, this, all of these things she tries to be and just cannot. And so she ends up being this wild character. Um, so in a way, it sort of encompasses all of my work. I feel alter egos are these kind of, um, I don't know, vessels almost that carry all of the other mediums. And sometimes I think about the character first. And then what that character comes through. So it's almost a world that I build around around that character. She was the first one. And now there is more and more that I conjure up. But she brought a few others. There's a bad bunny. There's a bad cat. <laughs> so there, there are a few follow-ups that I filmed in various locations, uh, mostly in domestic kind of spaces or um, upstate and residencies where it looks also very suburban or regional or rural um, or in the woods. I've done a few of those with masks. So she was kind of one of the first. So it's a few years now. Um, but she keeps coming up and she keeps being asked to be present. And I, I, I kind of disassociate from her. So I will say always she, it's not me, mm -hmm. but it is me. Um, I've also asked other uh, people to perform her now, um, which is very, it's a new development in my work. So um, that's kind of, taking to the future of this particular using thing. other actors to yes embody these i think i saw the bunny one yes mm -hmm. i saw that on on your on your website um wh what is the relationship with nature um you mentioned the sub suburban landscape mm -hmm. and then sometimes the suburban landscape is this kind of intermediate zone between wilderness and um is that something that like the body and nature, it's more, it's well. The suburbia fascinates me. Mm -hmm. um, I went from a city life in Ukraine to suburbia life in Australia, and 
um, being an Im- immigrant there, not speaking the language, being it's suburb is very isolating to me. And Australian suburb is very similar to I would say California, very sprawled out. It's a car culture. You need a car. So I rebelled, and to this day, I don't drive. <laughs> I would walk everywhere and, like, you know, uh, use public transport and was such a rebel from young age um, against all this kind of culture that drove me crazy. So Australia is that to me. Um, and I also wanted to escape. I mean, it's a natural thing. I wanted mm. to go to the cities. So when I was young, I moved to London. I'm, I lived in Paris. I lived all over Europe in big cities, mm. and I ended up in New York. So it's <laughs> I studied in Chicago and, and studied in London and moved all around. Um, so to me, suburbia was both isolating and fascinating because it's so um, – the houses where I filmed, there's no one on the streets ever. It's quiet. It's It looks dead, but there's life behind these big houses. And so it's similar here. It's not that yeah. different um, in terms of um, suburban places. So to me, it's just fascinating. Also, this um, bad woman kind of conjure up. It's almost horror show. It's a little bit of a gothic, uh, suburban gothic, which is very popular in America. And I've, I love those movies and kind of be horror. Um, so something happens, you know, in, in these houses behind behind closed doors. And, right. The- the fissures in the perf- the perfect exterior mm-hmm. and what's, exactly what's- and the facade. So the bad woman, she there's a facade of of nice, pretty, very pretty, very clean suburbia. But behind the scenes, this woman and also domesticity and and housewife and what yes. does that mean? And um, talk about feminist kind of gaze as well. M- one of my most uh, favorite films is Chantal Ackerman. Um, and now I forget the the movie. Oh my god! Of mm, course, not lest maybe. Um, it's it's her most famous feminist film oh, where the woman, Jean Dielman, yes, Jean no. Dielman, um, where she kills in yeah. the end, and the whole suburb, the whole kind of domesticated, you know, this woman sort of takes yeah. care of everything, and then she is so she keeps it all under wraps, but it unravels in real time. And so, to me, I watched it in, and I studied it in grad school, and I absolutely, um was just fascinated by this character. So it's kind of, I started that bad woman in grad school, um, performing this very slow tasks and particular tasks that I like washing and washing floors and which I still do in a lot of my work. Now I clean. Yes. In fact, that leads me to a question, Mm -hmm. which I had kind of prepared. So I'm just going to read it. But, um, in your video, uh, videotape performance piece, House Play from mm-hmm. 2015, among others, um, there's an aspect of it that reminded me of Martha Rosler's seminal video, Semiotics of the Kitchen, 1975, um, it's a, which, in which she critiques the role of women in the kitchen by creating a kind of alternate cooking show. Do you consider maybe that piece or her work in general, a point of departure for your own work? Yes, it's funny that you mention it because I reperformed that, oh, really? that piece early on. I had kind of our A to Z reperformance stage in school, both undergrad and grad, uh, where I went through all of these pieces just to feel them through my body and to, to see. And all of my pieces are funny. I just rediscovered a comic talent, apparently, and all my professors were saying, you're performing Martha Rosler, but hers is not funny. Yours is hysterical. Um, so I ended up doing more and more absurd characters, and I definitely consider Martha as one of my teachers, mm-hmm. whatever that means. And I've met Martha here and, of course, oh, really? followed her work. And I've been in the show with her um, on Body Image at some point, so I was oh, very, very, very excited. Yeah, that is very exciting. 
Um, but in terms of nature, um, from suburbia, I'm also very fascinated by nature because um, in Australia, nature and some of my latest videos were filmed in Australian forests. Um, it's so wild and I touched almost. And, and so what does that mean to bring that body and sometimes very absurd, very artificial costuming, as you've seen my like paper mache kind of DIY, um, and put it against this sublime, this massive kind of wild <laughs> nature that's, um, I love Australian kind of landscape. So to me, that's where my fascination comes is coming from Ukraine, much more of a city culture to, more of a very uh, beautiful place, but also very fraught place. Mm. Australia is colonial. Mm -hmm. Which leads me to another follow-up question that I, um, that I was thinking about for you, uh, considering the changing landscape of your life experience as a female artist, growing up in Ukraine and then moving on to Australia and now your New York City experience. Um, how do you... Um, combine how do you um, bring all these different experiences and different nationalities into your one landscape and um, is the identity you know the ethical identity relevant in your work and if so how do you make it a tool um, with the folklore with a different clash of all of these different folklores from you know, polar opposites are, are as far as like location on, on the world map. How do they all come together and how do you make them your tool? I think it's all the history, my personal history are all kind of almost pools I sort of um, are active, uh, grab from constantly and dig. Um, archival digs are my favorite thing to do. Family history, family folklore, my own biography. And I think all of these identities for me, and I talk a lot about these um, in my sort of generally in my practice, is I can never belong. So once you're an immigrant plucked from your native, you can never, I had to learn another language and I speak several now. And then it's sort of constant adopting and adapting, but you're never quite there. So it's always becoming. So to me, the characters act as I a stands in between identities. So they're sort of um, vehicles where I dumped all this absurdity and misunderstanding and sometimes language clashes and cultural clashes onto these characters, onto the masks, onto the costumes. Um, often my installations carry these bodies. They're sort of bodily um, stand-ins for identity that I'm looking for. And I can never, I understand that I can never once once leaving the place of birth and where um, language and culture was so strong and particular. Um, also, I was born in the Soviet Union, so I actually completely, I come from a place doesn't, that doesn't exist. Um, so that's a whole other absurd level. And I love Soviet absurdity. I grew up in Soviet cinema and complete absurd, crazy science fiction stuff that um, very DIY. <laughs> Also love those films. Um, that is all in my work. If you really look closely, that aesthetic is, um, there's something at the Pavera in there. You know, I use what I've got <laughs> often. Um, so those, those misunderstood identities and misunderstandings that kind of collage, I collage them and I mash things up and culturally, personally, I don't really have a culture per se. That's why New York City is such a good fit for me because I could be anyone um, and fit the culture here. So I feel, but I can put it all in my work. So often it's both 
traumatic, tragic, funny, hilarious, absurd, many, many things that come together. And so they, they mash up and kind of assemble. And you often can't tell, and I'm fine with, like, you can't tell what the cultural background really is, um, because I can't tell either. <laughs> and that really resonates with this idea of uh, object as a transitional place and um, how it's absorbed by a new installation. It, it moves from one context to another, and that's, that's really beautiful. It's, uh, it makes uh, the, the static of the object um, into a, uh, you know, an extension mm-hmm. every time you recontextualize a sculpture or a piece or a character. It, it, it becomes, um, it has this other life. And I, I would like you to uh, talk a little bit about that in context of uh, the pleasure principle. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that uh, re- related to Sarah Lucas's uh, piece uh, as well? And um, uh, how did you incorporate that uh, as in terms of uh, title and also um, the quoted sculpture that you have in the installation? The Pleasure Principle um, was an interesting project where I actually took a character on that I'm developing now, this whole series of brand new characters that are stemming up from all of these things. Um, but The Pleasure Principle was based on... Um, just having being radical in pleasure and especially female pleasure, but also being funny with it and, and being like rejecting the art object idea. So I would take, I did a solo exhibition at um, Soho 20 gallery and then took all the objects in the exhibition out to the audience in um, performance and asked them to touch it and caress it. And, and sort of the pleasure principle is Freud. Basically that's his, um, concept um it's everything behind it's it's lurking behind everything we do um everything so i was interested in that but also turning it into like art experience and upside down and kind of people the 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 photograph that i love from that performance is when someone's licking a sculpture and i didn't expect that so i started licking it too on the other side and that became (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> quite, quite funny and, and erotic and also really gross because that sculpture is on the floor in that show for a month before the, <laughs> the performance. Uh, but people are really into really caressing these objects and really going for it. So, you know, that a little bit reminds me of the work of um, um, Mike Kelly. Yeah. And I felt there's a bit of a correlation mm-hmm. um, visually, aesthetically mm-hmm. between your work and his with the stuffed animals yes <laughs> and this idea of empathy and ex- extruding empathy from the viewer or mm-hmm. the or the these objects become psychological mediums mm-hmm. for that type of occurrence mm-hmm. um, or platform it, it becomes the, the the gallery becomes a platform for those psychological exchanges I definitely relate to both Paul McCarthy and um Mike Kelly and I have been compared quite a bit oh, to, really? okay, so. to both of them in different projects. But uh, in terms of Mike Kelly, there's nostalgia that I really relate to and mm-hmm. sadness in his work and that domestic space. But that's also really sad uh, and suburban and there's something mm-hmm. um, childhood and and I have that childhood in my work too. Um, and so they talk about transient objects. There's that childhood in each object too. There the, something I talk about the teddy bears. <laughs> My obsession with teddy bears, they're getting bigger and bigger. Um, it's because it's coming from also this kind of Soviet culture of not having much and having no color. 
So it was a lot of, so now I'm obsessed and I'm still very childish sometimes in what I'm attracted to. Mm-hmm. So the more garish and soft and plush the color and uh, the texture, the more I want to play with it and, and have a sculpture out of it. So it's definitely psychosomatic and psych- psychological. It actually um, leads me to a question I wrote down. Um, I wrote, um, in your work, I see qualities of color and texture, of textiles, styling, and prop creation. And I'd just love to hear you speak more about that aspect, the visual, and um, have it, you know, having a conversation with you earlier about your training in, in fashion. It's um, definitely there's a prop element to the way I deal with objects because I perform with them often. And so they become props for a performance, for a video but then they become sculptures later. So there's this, I like to live with the objects almost or to have them have their history and to, um, I think what Isabella was mentioning earlier, to go from one show to the next and kind of transcend something in between and change. Um, and so the color and this prop idea, um, I used to be in fashion and I worked in fashion just a little bit. I was young and then I was, not interested in it fully, but as an immigrant, I couldn't be an artist because I didn't understand what that was. So when I was a young woman, I went straight from high school to fashion design degree um, and finished it <laughs> and worked in the industry a little bit, um, but but ran away very quickly. I hated it, but it stayed with me. I know the fashion history really well. I know my costume history really well. I studied textile science, so I play with fabrics a lot. I know what they do. I can sew. I can make a collection from scratch. That is in my hands. That is my knowledge. And as an artist, I like to have that knowledge. I like to have extra knowledge um, of things I can I can sew really well. So that's kind of something they really trained as well. Um, and I, I hated it, part of me, because I was always wanted to be free of it and draft, like pattern making. And But I, I know it. Um, what's interesting, I also studied, now I realized I actually studied marketing fully, properly. And now I get asked sometimes to lead marketing workshops and to, because <laughs> apparently I'm good at marketing and I never understood that. Yes, fashion industry, it's all about marketing. So I was taught that I, I, you know, I was like 18. I don't know. I didn't pay attention, but <laughs> now years later, especially with social media, um, I know the principles well. It's the retail marketing. It's like the worst of it, but it's also, very capitalist, very, you know, I understand it. And these are tools that artists need. Yeah. You know, and and they, no one teaches them in school, yeah. in art schools, because Absolutely. I then yeah. went to art school and it was paradise comparing to fashion to me. Um, but I also came already with all that knowledge behind me. Economics yeah. was another one. I failed yeah. economics, but I did study business right. marketing. Oh, and so I, interesting. Really so interesting. fashion is there yeah. in my work, like the staging of it, the, you can see how I stage. Even Bad Woman was staged a little bit like a photo shoot. Yeah, you mentioned that. Yeah, mm-hmm. but grotesquely wrong. And yeah, yeah, like going against <laughs> going entirely. really wrong photo shoot. Um, but it is staged like I would stage because I used to help on photo shoots yeah, with models and dress yeah. models. I would love to hear you speak about your the immigrant artist biennial that you're mm-hmm. working on. It resonates with me with the. Uh, the aims of the organization wage at some you know basic degree, which all which seeks to set standards for the financial compensation of unpaid of the unpaid labor of artists, mostly women. And I was wondering, do you see an overlapping with wage and your initiative, the immigrant artist 
biennial? I mean, it's it's interesting that you mentioned that because I'm currently in the fundraising stage. Um, and why I'm, I'm insisting on not starting it up properly until I fundraise because I want to pay. I want to pay my team, which is female run. I want to pay my artists. And um, I'm going to be very ethical about where the money comes from. Definitely, it's an immigrant artist biennial. So there is a correlation. I know wage really well because I look to it all the time for my own practice. But I also, um, I, I, you know, recently with the Whitney biennial and what they're paying or not paying and just finding out how little everything is. And I know I've been practicing mm-hmm. for years. Um, we're mostly unpaid artists and unpaid curators too. So I am trying to I mean, raise... to be honest, I wasn't asking a direct question like that, but I just saw that it's, you know, it's a grassroots oh, right. initiative yeah. for empowering artists. In that sense, I found that there was this mm-hmm. correlative parallel between you and an, or- an organization that's really picked up a lot of um steam in the last few years and really made their voice heard Mm -hmm. and uh oh i understand okay um i mean i understood also both like really directly but at the same time it is a grassroots i mean it's literally artist run uh biennial it's all of us are artists and curators who are in it um as in behind the scenes i am just getting it off the ground a little Mm -hmm. bit we're going to start setting up events and kind of introducing it to the world. Um, Sounds really exciting. Yeah, and here um, I wanted to ask, like, comparing to existing known biennials out there, mm-hmm. what's the alternative that you're offering for the structure? And it sounds really fascinating and uh, totally kind of reworking uh, that concept from the grounds up mm-hmm. um, and um, also how it relates to your life experience because it, it, all, yeah. it all always go, comes back you know, to your experience? I mean, it's directly coming from the fact that I'm a double immigrant experience immigration twice now, um, and I know all about it. Um, but I also know the misunderstandings being an artist, immigrant artist. I'm a mentor in um, immigrant artist program in NYFA, mm-hmm. and NYFA is my fiscal sponsor for the biennial. So that's where um, we. it's coming from actually my work there. Um, I was a mentee in 2012, post-grad school, and then now, years later, I'm mentoring every year almost. Um, and every immigrant artist that I have struggles quite a bit here. Um, so I go through, now I have this whole kind of package of how to help. Um, and I know what, it's different because culturally it's different. So there's many things um, people don't understand about the art world here. And some people don't study here. They come here with just trying to exhibit, trying to be an artist. But if they don't have degrees from here, it's a very different culture. Um, so I kind of see the gap. And I first biennial will be specifically based on first-generation immigrants. So I'm setting the tone in a way. Um, and it could be, it's international, but it is first-generation from each country. So whatever that is. Oh, with, so you'll with, focus on a country. No, no, well, no, no, sorry. it's going to change. I mean, I'm the first, cu- so I'm yes. setting it up. So I'm the first curator. So my idea is to, it's in New York City. The banyol will be based here, um, but it could travel. That's that's the kind of difference that I would do. I would travel it a little bit more than just having it here. I would also ha- maybe focus on country. You know, it will yeah. change. Right now, it's basically will depend on funding. But I would like to, from 20 to 50 artists max for the first one, 20 is the lowest. So somewhere in between, maybe 30, um, and have a few artists will be commissioned here from New York, immigrant artists that I know, that I worked with, that I've been meaning to really 
get them to do something exciting and different. Um, and then it will be an open call, which is another thing that I, it's different for most biennials. It's closed. Mm. And as an artist, I know what, it, what that's like. <laughs> we all yes. know what it means not to be able to be submitting to, to biennials. Um, so for, th- but to even to apply to fiscal sponsorship, I researched every biennial under the sun. I know their websites. I, I went deep. Wow. Um, we just finished the website, so it's going to go live. A lot of it is actually kind of culled from other biennials. We just narrowed down what we like. Um, and it's, it's, it's been a really interesting research because the word biennial brings immediate everyone to attention, but the word immigrant doesn't. <laughs> so I'm mashing those two things up and I'm interested in what happens when the art world comes in a different, you know, it's the open call is democratic, but how's that going to work? I don't, Yeah, there's many questions here and I know they will come up all the time and I'm very happy to talk about this because I'm just, it's an idea Yeah, <laughs> uh, and an experiment. Well, it's, good luck with it. We, we wish you. you the best with that because it sounds really, really <laughs> fertile and exciting. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm excited about it. And in the question of um, education system, because we've talked about it before, you've criticized it. Um, and, uh, I totally agree with you. Um, w- would you have a prescription on for like ideal art school that uh, would involve all of the informing aspects of functioning or starting up as an emerging artist, uh, considering mm. your experience, um, with residencies, with applying for, for funding for programs, because I see that part lacking in schools mm-hmm, a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you went, you went to, um, the Institute of Arts in Chicago. Um, so what I mean, would you take from that? Would you rework some of those ideas? The expense of it all. Uh, <laughs> of course, I would say that's never ideal. Um, I went to art school in Australia, I went to, to a design school in London. I, you know, tested the waters several times um here it's been it's i i had a great i have a great degree i love the school but it's really expensive it's really elitist it's all those things um it was still tough i came here on my own and didn't know anyone so it was still i had to do triple the work i felt personally um they 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 did inform us quite a bit i did learn a lot about residencies and professional practice but that's i feel it's because i inquired a lot (laughs) So I asked around, like, what, what is the American art world? What does it mean to be here? I will, I want to live here. What does it mean? So I kept kind of nagging my professors and advisors. And this is at the Institute. Yeah, of School of the Art Institute. Yeah, in Chicago. Um, I did my master's. Which is one there. of the best. In the yeah. Country. And I, I came here with, um, that idea that I wanted to go one of the best in the country. And, and I also really loved being part of the museum. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was an ideal school because I loved having access. We had access to some of the, I was a teaching assistant in a lot of um, classes. So I had access to museum kind of like behind the scenes. So and how does it work? They actually have a museum? It's, on the well, the Art Institute is the mass oh. major museum in the US. Right. It's one of the encyclopedic. Yeah. So Iowa school is literally right on the grounds of it. My studio is in the basement of the museum. So oh, I, I, I was that. very excited. It's I, really integrated. It's really, I, I went through the museum to, to, it was home base and I wanted to be my ambition. And I always say this, I'm, I'm pretty ambitious and I wanted to be 
considered in line, like Georgia O'Keeffe was just above me. And I thought, hi, Georgia. You know, that was my thing. Like every day, like, hi, Georgia. I'm here too. <laughs> I'm now in history. You know, I wanted to be considered in that history, like a lineage. Um, so to me, that was really important. I wanted that to learn and to kind of be, you know, in the vicinity of all these artworks. Um, but I don't think it, it's, it's pretty fraught too. Nothing. It's politically, you know. It's never, it was tough too. It, yeah. It's, it's never, there's no ideal. I would say if you can't afford, um, an MFA, then don't do it. <laughs> Just start, start it up yourself. And especially today, there's so many residency programs and so many, um, I learned actually, I would say that my first year after school, I assisted artists and interned with, um, well-known artists and I learned more in one year than in years before because it's practice it's it's already in the world um yes. so i would say if you can do that already if you can just go out there and do it and after bfa and i still think degrees and education is important i wouldn't be i would be nowhere i think especially as an immigrant a lot came through education for me and it's actually assimilation was through degrees and schools and i wouldn't know where to begin if i didn't graduate from and also my family is Oh, they would kill me if I didn't have at least masters. I mean, they ask me, where's your PhD? God damn it. I can't. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, now they're starting to do PhD in, yes, in art. I think yes. it's Goldsmith in London. Well, Australia but, has been doing and, it for years. Oh, I could get it any day if I wanted to, but I don't want to go back. So, But I think that's great <laughs> advice that you suggested about working directly with artists yeah. and learning through that experience. So I just want to remind our listeners that you're listening to Radio Free Brooklyn. Wonderful. I wanted to take the course a little bit into the larger frame. Mm -hmm. um, and I was actually thinking about uh, your work and um, your activism, uh, which informs your work. It's like a back and forth conversation. And uh, the larger theme that's going on in the public discourse right now, which is the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. Do you associate yourself with it? Uh, do you see yourself and represent yourself as, uh, you know, the strong, de determined female artist contributing, you know, contributing your, your voice out there um, and uh, showing how to shape and construct your own place uh, in spite of the status quo, redefining it at the same time? I definitely um, relate and I have a performance. I actually gave a lecture where at the end it was once Me Too came up, um, where at the end I just said Me Too and I am, um, I stand with, um, and I have a lot of experience with in education actually with problems with male professors and especially as a young female student. Um, so I definitely relate and I use it in my work, maybe not as literally or directly sometimes, but um, actually, Bad Woman is the one who speaks more and more about this. Um, I recently did, a, as part of College Art Conference, Feminist Artist Project Symposium, um, Bad Woman performed there, um, which is really, you know, it's at the Hilton. It's kind of stuffy, academic. And so she went on stage in the microphone and talked about being raped. So behind the mask and I cried probably sorry I'm gonna start crying but um cried behind the mask which you can't see which makes it really surreal and that's where the absurdity kind of you know scary uh but people were crying in the audience too so and I said me too several times um but I almost have to like the mask helps me to 
have that conversation, I feel. And I could have a conversation like this, like face to face, but I'm not, I'm just a person. But when I perform, there's this character. She's larger than life and literally her head is very big. (laughs) Her mask is much bigger than my face. So in a way, and she doesn't, her mouth is not open. It's all closed. um, And only one I can see, like out of, I can see only. So it's kind of this very masked persona that talks about that. um, And I feel very brave through her much more. And I'm a pretty brave person, but much more than I could she becomes a talisman yes she's someone else and and then i kind of transport things and it's what what people i think sometimes underestimate it's not just it's not all my personal stuff actually i research and read and i I fictionalize and put it all together so sometimes what i say goes way beyond what i've experienced it goes through me too movement and goes through other people um and with bad woman i recently started saying i take her through centuries so she becomes, and in this performance, particularly recently, I, I was talking about centuries of abuse. And um, some people have said that I transported them into something else. There was, this happened a century ago. This happened 300 years ago. And so I became time traveling, uh, bad woman. Wow, it's really fascinating. <laughs> so that was, that was the kind of the point and also centuries of patriarchy. So I talk about that in performance and it's, it's easier for me to almost I call it like closed face. So you can't see my face mm-hmm. reacting or crying or whatever. You know, you can just see this almost this absurd, cold, unmoving character. Um, and it helps to. But I'm sure you're, the face of the mask doesn't change, but your intonation and yes. tone must. Yeah. It's like a you're performing and acting. and Yeah. It, yeah. And I have done performances where it's open last Last year I did Bad Bunny, Bad Woman at Spring Break Art Fair and she was just wearing a dress and open and was to say, talking about being undervalued as a female artist straight to the audience, to people coming to the art fair. So it was very direct and I was almost pointing at people. And <laughs> I totally see her as an extension of your desire to change the status quo mm-hmm. and also then all the other uh, collective uh, desires sort of um layering on so she becomes she grows yes she becomes larger with uh, all of the you know collective voices projected mm-hmm. on um that's how she grows this strong and this big would you call her yeah. a brand yeah. by you know it's interesting now? you mentioned because i just bought a domain for her I, <laughs> oh cool i am totally in the branding mode i don't because i also i have a logo for her and i have t-shirts with that logo for it, this was fundraising for my upcoming solo exhibition they printed the t-shirts but i designed the logo and it's <laughs> and then i started searching and bought a few things online i thought i think i might want to separate her into her own world yeah and it could, it could be a brand. And what this is where my fashion marketing comes in. This is why I start thinking like a really hardcore marketing fashion label because I was taught those principles and I understand them. And I thought, Oh, I know how to do this. I can actually make a fashion collection from her. You know, I can make an army of bad women. I can make all these masks. So the branding is, but she's, it's not just commercial. It's more, it's an almost like activist branding. I don't know. Um, but what I love about your work is that it doesn't play 
like in a direct way with the fashion and mm-hmm. it completely subverts it. You're not Mm-mm. putting lipstick in the right place. I mean, you're not even putting lipstick on. No, like there's no <laughs> lipstick. Like, I don't know if you've seen the work of, um, I'm sure you have, but Anne Liv Young, mm-hmm. she plays with yep. masks. She plays with identity. Yes. And the way she deals with the, a lot of the, the I think there's a lot of similarity, mm-hmm. but she uses the trope of the female um, sexuality in a very direct mm. way, the way that we understand it in pop culture. And you're not doing that. And I think that's so interesting. Mm. That's a, that's a good observation. I think when you look closely, I, I almost, I try this. I come from the other side of it. I try to fit that and I, I fail. She, fa- they fail. The characters fail. So I try to fit that mold. I try to be, Oh, look, let me cross my legs this way. And then the, the legs just don't cross and they fall apart. <laughs> you know, she sits up and leg. Um, so like the nor- the social norms, she breaks that status quo almost and she tries to fit into that mold right. and breaks down. And so the masks are breaking down. Um, I use a lot of fashion magazines and junk mail with female images on the masks anyway with paper mache. So there's constant subversion and it's just in me. I just really like to go into layering of it rather than being very, very direct. Right. Sometimes. But sometimes the speech that I, that I say or deliver in performance or video has to be that direct, has to be, I'm undervalued, has Mm -hmm. to be, I have to say that almost. Sometimes it has to be delivered right to your face because I feel also context where it's placed is important in art fairs commercial so i have to almost want to say it um, and do <laughs> so we have about 10 15 minutes left and maybe we'll start asking our final questions i was actually thinking to bring the concept of the gaze which i think is very prevalent in your work especially mm-hmm. having that mediation in terms of the mask um and i see the bad woman you know um actually having a lot of of the self-inflicted humor and self-deprecating attitude and um, that the self-reflected gaze, therefore, she's very self-critical and then she's digesting that and spitting out. Mm-hmm. And that's that's how I feel her. I mm-hmm. feel her first, then I mm-hmm. look at her. So yeah. in terms of the gaze, um, what, what would be the directionality there? Is, is she um, taking... The, the classic term of the gaze or is she creating a totally new definition? There's this gaze of when I'm very fascinated by the female gaze that now comes up a lot recently, especially. Um, and with Chantal Ackerman, it's that female gaze. It's a mm-hmm. very, it's a different gaze. Um, but also the feminist cinema and what does that mean? So I'm filming myself. There's no one else. And I am behind the camera in the front constantly. I'm also the editor. Most of my work right now, I do have an assistant and editor, but um, most of my work still is for, through my own gaze. So there's no one mediating between the camera. So the camera is another gaze that I'm constantly struggling with. I think because coming from fashion world early on, the camera is always on you. But now today we're constantly with cameras in our pockets what does that mean? Being mediated through screen all the time and being fixed. So is that like an anticipation of how it will be perceived? Yeah, there's this constant. I look at the what I just filmed and, and go back in front of the camera, go back to being the producer, the, you know, the subject, the constant, constant. Um, and that back and forth makes me really aware of what the cameras, what the gaze and what it will be. What I cut out, what I show you is completely my, it's like being a director, basically. Um, 
completely my, you know, idea and concept, but the gaze is really always there. And I was fascinated by the book, Laura Malvey, of course, on the male gaze, which is the first time I heard it. I actually remember that day I went back home, absolutely sat on the bed and was just in shock because I re- she talks about um, that the camera comes coming from the male gaze only. We, we are brought up and born into this and we don't see ourselves, but through the this gaze of the cameraman and of the director who are men. And I was just absolutely fascinated. I was like 17 maybe when I read mm. this. And it again, another female writer, another person, another filmmaker who had a huge influence. So I, the gaze is, it comes through my work constantly. I, I'm sometimes going back to her words and kind of rethink what that means to be both behind and in front and how I want to represent what I'm talking about. Uh, and a self-deprecation, that's that humor. That's also, I'm very obvious about it. I'm, I'm showing you that this is actually an armor of that women carry sometimes. We, we like make it funny, but reality is not funny at all. So it's, it's both. It's both funny and kind of tragic and, uh, traggy comic, you know, that <laughs> kind of, and, and I, I sort of deliver it so you can watch it in that like almost funny sugary sometimes way but then when you when you kind of walk away from her it's yeah. a little bit that's really discomforting yeah well you were talking earlier about your performance piece with the mask and the history of women's suffering mm-hmm. um where do you see women's position in our contemporary world and is there are we on a trajectory to our, towards a, a better future as a as a group or is it just uh doomed to kind of cycle you know because there mm. seem to be these waves of advancement and then right and i mean the waves come with government too so <laughs> there's that and it's so but, uneven um, in certain parts yeah. of the world as a woman i certainly hope we're on a better trajectory and we are actually on the trajectory towards something but when i read something and i read a lot of feminist press every single day and not just feminist press in general but news and and you know another woman's right another right because you have your blog yeah the feminist yeah i mean i don't i kind of want haters because i'm fully into the biennial mode Mm -hmm, right now mm -hmm. but um, but I it's always, still another project. It's, it's another that, project that's ongoing. Um, I always read and, and listen and think about where are we? And, and mm-hmm. because we're forgetting that, um, we can vote because women only recently fought for us. So to do this. So are we going backwards? Are we going forward? Um, and I feel it's always one step forward, two step back. It's consistent going back. You know, now they're banning, they're banning abortions everywhere. Um, state by state. I mean, it's happening. What is happening? Rowan Wade, are we going towards, I mean, right. all of this is really, as a woman who I'm coming from Ukraine, Soviet Union, whereas, you know, they're that's, tough. That's a, that's a whole other complicated yeah, yeah. culture because on yeah. the one hand, women had certain kinds of rights that mm-hmm. were very advanced. And on the other hand, it was a very patri- extremely patriarchal, still, old school still kind very of society. So, and this is where... Bad woman is almost also against even all my own family in a way. You know, it's all, it's all kind of showing that this character that just leave her, leave her be, leave her. Um, it's the same. It's patriarchal. It's still the same. But then women had rights early on. 
Um, and I grew up with right, parents. Right, part of the communist kind of manifesto. Yeah, so women were workforce always. Both my parents worked. I sometimes, I was a tiny little thing that had to cook for myself and look after myself sometimes. And that's right. why maybe I'm so independent. It's so, like forceful in my kind of, yes, let's, you know, go march. Um, but at the same time, I saw subtleties and I saw still my mom did double shifts like everybody wow. and all of that stuff. So I grew up with many of that of those um, principles of thinking, oh, my mom's so great. She's, she's, you know, working every day, but she comes home and cooks and cleans and nobody else is doing it. But she worked all day. So did my dad. So what is, so I grew up watching and observing and thinking why. I also grew up with an Eastern European mm-hmm. uh, mother. And I saw her work all the time. All the time. All the same. I think it's the kind of you quality too, that's, <laughs> that's uh, the, you know, the principle of being committed Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, being consistent with yeah. that and um, the the kind of discipline that you have and yeah. the pers- sense of uh, perseverance. Very important. The wor- word and the work ethic <laughs> and the work ethic. Yeah. Work yes. Ethic. I, I come from Polish but also background I think, and, I, yeah. I, and yeah. Catholic background mm-hmm. <laughs> as well. I'm not religious right now, but uh, that sense of discipline is so left. <laughs> In yeah. me, and um, I wanted to take that question um, of the agency of uh, feminist voice uh, in your, you know, activism um, a little bit farther. Um, next, we'll be covering uh, reviews of two shows: Sarah Lucas versus Andy Warhol. And I did um, reference her work uh, before mm-hmm. in the Beyond Pleasure Principle. Yes. And I wonder if, like, your uh, installation performance piece echoes or you know refers mm-hmm. to to her a little bit um and uh, do you associate your agency with you know uh with with her work i mean not she's definitely someone i looked to when i was studying um tracy emmons or lucas all of all of the 90s kind of stars but um i i sort of to me her work speaks on a bodily level especially Sarah, Sarah's, Sarah's work. Um, and in a kind of, kind of the way she overtakes the museum, that was really great. The huge the new female, museum. yes, the, mm-hmm. that show that the huge photo on the wall that her with her legs spread. So I really related to that. And when I went to her lecture, um, she sat like that in front, just in jeans with no, no shoes, just woman socks. spreading, woman spreading. And she said, the f- never forget. She said, this is the most radical thing a woman can do. How sad. We're still there. So this is where we're, we're still there. Mm-hmm. We're still, if we sit like this, we're not, what is going on? So we, st- we have to be still polite and take up less space. So when she said it, I thought, oh my God, she's right. She was doing these things in the 90s and we're still, st- women are still considered, we have to appear a certain way, have to s- be softer and more polite and take up less space. So this is where my activism, this is where, Sometimes I, t- I say it, I'm going to take up space or I, you know, I really stand up and do stuff or I create large and alive characters. It's all part of that activism. In a way, it's like subversive. It's like s- subtle activism. Sometimes you have to really look, but I have this stance, power stances of these women. Um, it's all part of it. So I relate to Sarah. And then another thing she said, I actually wrote it down somewhere in my studio. Um, she said to do with this show, her latest show that, um, you can't take a woman out of her work. I am a woman. It's in my work. Leave me be. 
let the work be what it is made by a woman. Why is it such a problem? It's still a problem. Mm-hmm. So that was that really resonated with me. So on a level, I, I also see her as an activist. She is through her work. Mm-hmm. Right. So that that really I relate to her. And I was really I clapped. I was like, oh, my God. Yes. Why are we hiding the fact that this is made by a woman? It's a woman's hands. She's talking about issues that she relates to um, her sexuality, you know, pleasures, female pleasure. Why is that a problem? Why is it valued less? So that is uh, for me, Sarah, in that respect is still very relevant. And you can see through the years that her work and also in terms of reworking your previous pieces, mm-hmm. appropriating your own older work and yes. reconfiguring it in the new context. In, in constantly, um, yeah. And I saw one of her sculptures in your uh, installation. I think it was the pleasure. No, it was, it's a it's or, it's a mannequin. I mean, it's not <laughs> it's not cast. I can't afford it right now. But it's a mannequin that has legs that is similar um, to her, and there's a yellow. This yellow and white, so it's similar kind of, um, and the legs are cut off, um, torso. Um, but it's, it's, it, this mannequin's kind of traveling from show to show in different configurations. And I don't know, it's currently mm. in, on its own. But. Isabella, would you mind talking about your upcoming exhibition that includes Katya's performance and work? So from the upcoming shows, one of them is, um, uh, Falling through and going after, which relates to the status quo, the um, you know the larger discourse of having um, female you know presence marked on the landscape of art history and having it concealed or removed or um, you know non-present, um, and it's it's wonderful that you know you're part of it. Um, I'm looking forward to your edition of Bad Woman. <laughs> the opening is on um, April 5th. Performance is at 8 o'clock. The show will have uh, five females, female artists in it. Um, Katya Rakowski and uh, Sarah Nicole Furman, um, Ashling Hamrouge and Sarah Lee and myself. And um, there's going to be different rendering of idea of a landscape in different mediums from painting to, uh, you know, through video performance sculpture in your work, um, ceramic work, um, different, different points of entry to navigating this idea of a figure and the body, um, uh, reconfiguring, overtaking, digesting the landscape and, uh, reclaiming it within the part of, parameters, peripheries of, um, of its own gaze addressed at the status quo, um, you know, all these different uh, mediums. So looking forward to that. Uh, this, the show will be con- uh, distributed in two spaces and um, considering the idea of a landscape as like psychological landscape and then outside uh, conventional landscape, there's going to be two different approaches and um, your work will be in one of the spaces and um, I'm really curious about the, the bad woman and how she's going to transform and occupy the, the space. And, um, and yeah, do you have any initial thoughts about that? Well, I mean, I'm thinking of her as someone who, uh, as we talked about the art history, 
through the years of the landscape, the sublime made by male artists or presented to us. Oh, yeah. Made only by Oh, male yeah. Artists. We are starting with, I mean, my, mm-hmm. my statement begins with the Hudson Valley School of Painters and right. uh, how the, the figures totally, the bodies totally immersed and invisible, camouflaged mm-hmm. in the landscape. And, and, and then uh, the Caspar David Friedrichs, uh, you know, traveler or wanderer above mm-hmm. the sea mm-hmm. and again the figure being subsumed or mm-hmm. you know f- falling in uh to the sublime and then um going into the body you know taking over um reconfiguring um the coordinates themselves mm-hmm. that define that and um i think that's what the bad woman does eventually mm-hmm. and i mean yeah and i'm thinking also of the, this phrase that she does, I want to be in history books. I want to be in history books. And there's so, going to be a book in the show. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to literally. <laughs> and <laughs> she literally says Museum. it, bec- yeah. especially at the end of her performance, because it goes back to ex- uh, a female artist being excluded from history. Um, so she brings it back to being a female artist often and over the centuries. So it's not just current and it's still happening. It's still um constantly where where we are not moving much um is that women have to almost die uh be 100 years old to have their museum retrospectives or museum big shows you keep i keep reading those articles i don't know now almost weekly another 93 year old another 94 year old female artist getting her dues getting her final you know finally finally yes we're rediscovering or discovering but they were always there What's happening? Um, and then I keep reading, oh, uh, a new 33-year-old male painter sell out at Basel and never female painters. So what's going on? What's going on? Constant. It's called the market, darling, is the 33-year-old male and the 100-year-old woman. So that dynamic is where the bad woman sometimes brings it up and says, well, I'm alive now. <laughs> it's happening now. Um, like Carol Schneeman talked about that her last five years of her life were the most, that's when she got fam- worldwide famous and acclaimed. She was 79 when she died. I mean, that's ridiculous. She should have had it in her 40s. Well, um, I th- I'm probably a little jaded, but I think it probably has to do with the market and investment. But, and Right, but they're why? They're like ready. They're like, hmm. But why? See, this is where I go. I go deep into this. Like, why is it intrinsic devaluement, devaluer of female work early, early on, straight mm. away, straight out of school, straight out? It, it just goes to, you know, constant. Why is our CVs? I'm often in shows where my CV is 10 pages and mm-hmm. yeah, male artist is one. And we're on this and my price is the same. That should not be like that. But it's like that constantly. So um, I saw all these calls for Art World, please stand up, please step up on uh, Women's Women's Day. If you saw all these articles, all these like female critics and writers were saying, can we please change this dynamic? Um, why are we still here? So this is where we're like in circles running mm-hmm. around. Um, yes. And I was thinking about this idea of emerging also in terms of the show, how it, it's taking place in an emerging gallery space and um, all of the artists are on different terms mm-hmm. uh, or ex- extension of that term emerging and how then you know the the female agency in the art world is constantly emerging on the scheme of the larger you know oh yeah uh, <laughs> perspective of art history um so also touching on that and uh, uh, looking forward to how it's going to unfold yeah 
Um, so we only have a couple of minutes left. So your exhibition is on April 5th at 8 o'clock. The performance starts. At Opening one, starts at 7. At 7. Performance at 8. At 8 at One Night Studios in Bushwick. Yes. What's the exact address? Do you? 1639 Center Street okay. between Cypress and Wyckoff. L train to Halsey mm-hmm. stop. <laughs> and then some other exhibitions by Katya coming up shortly after that date are a solo is a solo exhibition entitled Privately Owned uh, from May 10th to July 18th at New City Gallery curated by Overnight Projects in Burlington, Vermont. And after that, a group exhibition entitled Re-On-Site at the Boiler in Williamsburg. And that is on May 18th through July 18th. And that's uh, five female Female artists. artists Curated by two female um, current MFA candidates at Columbia University. And their names, uh, the curators' names are Bat Ami Rivlin and A. Jung Yu. So that should be amazing. I'm going. I may not make it to the Ver- Vermont show, no. but uh, who knows? I might. <laughs> yeah, the boiler is and the, the boiler is uh, all and of I'm us definitely going to be at One Night Studios. So. And I'd like to make a note of your current ongoing show, which is at the it's the Brick Biennial, yes. ending April seventh. So it's like last chances to go see it. Uh, the future is bright. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the title of your performance, also on March twenty seventh. The opening yes, night. next. Oh, and no, also, I'm performing next March 27th, next week. Wonderful. Yeah, next Wednesday. I'd love to. I'm going to be there, definitely. And then there is also a um, solo exhibition called Fantasyland at Smack Melon coming up. That's in the year and a half. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, moving forward, well, a little bit closer, November 2019, uh, group exhibition curated by Kathy Halfin at the Bronx River uh, a Bronx Art River Center, Brack. Brack. Yeah. Brick Brack. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Brack. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. It was wonderful to have you and to speak yes. about all of the issues. Thank you for having me. Informing your work. Yes. And just to remind our listeners, you're listening to Radio Free Brooklyn. Thanks again. Thank you Thank for you. having us.